Well, hello. Turn in your Bibles to James 1. <clears throat> Today, uh, we're going to look at uh, James's presentation of life and death. This uh, matter that he brings up in this, in this book is a matter of life and death. And that's exactly the words that he uses, except what is, is confusing for some and, and understandably is that instead of actually using life, which is, um, is a word I'm sure he uses multiple times, but he uses the word save. Uh, so save your life, right? And then so, or really save your soul. Is it save your life? But it really means save your life. And because of that word save, people get antsy about it because, you know, James here is talking about living the Christian life, whereas where Paul would often use the word save is for your, our faith at the moment of salvation. And so what James is talking about is something different. And it is the situation that is a life or death situation for the believer. Uh, not every believer is going to live an abundant life. Not every believer loves the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about it, these situations are around us all the time. Uh, I was trying to think, you know, where in history is there great life and death situations? And then it dawned on me, 2020 to 22 was this whole whole world went on lockdown because of a pandemic and people were scared to death. Some were, some won't, weren't, I mean. And, you know, we faced, barring all the politics aside and everything that's come out now, which is ironically delicious in some ways, but I, also infuriating in other ways. But, um, you know, a life or death situation would say a disease or a, a health scare. Uh, you get on, a, you were about to get on the plane, but last minute didn't, and then later it crashed, those kinds of things. They happen all the time. But in the Bible, the life or death situation that's presented to us is nothing like those. Nothing. God is not trying to save us from a pandemic or a plane crash. He might. I don't know. I hope he does for you. You know, But uh, what God is trying to save us from is a non-abundant life. And so in actuality, there's two uh, separate life and death situations in the Scripture. The first one is the most important, whether you believe in Christ as your Savior or you don't. For, that's for the whole human race. That's the gospel. The gospel is the life or death situation to the whole world. If you reject Christ as your Savior, you are going to be judged by God and you will meet your end in judgment in the lake of fire. It is a dire situation. The second life or death situation is for the believer. Uh, for the believer now whose eternal uh, life is secure and who has and cannot lose that eternal life, the believer now is faced with many decisions. Not the decision to believe in Christ, he's already, he or she has already done that. But to, to make many decisions. Decisions to do good and decisions to resist sin and evil. Uh, James is going to show us today that we've got to resist and say no to temptation. Um, and... And so the second one, this is the one we're going to examine today in the book of James. The Christian's life can still be marked by death-like things. We can be a, a saved, we're in Christ, we have eternal life, 
We have our eternity secure. And yet in time, we can still have a life that is marked by. We don't become dead things anymore because we're alive in Christ. But we become marked. Our lives become enshrouded in death-like things. Or our life can be abundantly productive and joyful. And the decision is ours. And it's multiple decisions. And it's a lot of decisions to work out and figure out uh, you know, what it is this plan has for us and to wrap our minds around us, around it. And so, um, how God has done this, we'll see this quickly today, that God has given us His, through His Son has made us His first fruits. He has brought us forth and made us alive. And secondly, He has given us His Word to obey. And there you have it. And so, we'll let's open up in prayer and let's, uh, look, get started here on this and making sure that uh, we're ready to hear the truth of this by giving to God over our full concentration and to be uh, ready and able to hear his truth. With that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that through your Lord, our Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have brought us forth, which is another way of saying that we are born again. All who have believed in Christ as their Savior, they are born again. Because we are born again of your Spirit, we are and have, we are yours, we are your children, and we have eternal life. We see within your word the abundance of things that you have blessed us with as well as the things that we think we know and yet there's so much more to know about them. For instance, you being our Father, your almighty, infinite, omniscient, omnipresent self as our very Father. For us as believers, as your children, we are just so um, looking forward to... Uh, eternity with you, but before we reach that time, we know, Father, that we must live in the manner that you have called us, because you have made us for it. So we look into this book again today and, and seek the guidance of you, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. So the opening letter to, to James uh, definitely has a prologue, it has a beginning uh, and, and a conclusion. Most of the letters in the New Testament are like this. As we noted yesterday, this letter was written very early, and in, in it's the first letter that was actually written that was put into the New Testament, although the New Testament, our New Testament doesn't order it like that. Um, the prologue has two sections, and both of them are about living life as a believer under suffering. The <clears throat> first is our proper attitude toward suffering itself. And so we saw a bit of that yesterday. Consider it all joy. You can read it there in verse 2. Uh, do I have it? I didn't even put it on here. But you consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, uh, for they are for your, uh, for your testing, um, and that they may prove or prove the quality of your faith. And I'm summarizing there because I don't have it in front, right in front of me. But, uh, and so that's various trials means testing in general. So this testing is suffering. I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be trial if it wasn't suffering. And so 
The first in the prologue is our proper attitude towards suffering. The second part of the prologue is our attitude towards God when we're under that suffering. The first section is in verses 2 through 11, and it tells us that we should face our trials with joy. Consider it all joy, because they will, if we have quality faith, and that's, that's really what James is getting at here, is that the testing of our faith will produce endurance. But think about this. What if you fail every test or fail most of the tests? Have you developed endurance? You haven't. In fact, you've got to pass these tests to uh, develop endurance. And so what God is, and none of us pass them all, so we know, uh, but <clears throat> the, uh, the quality of our faith, if it is of a quality that is one that, enables us to endure, and by endure we mean to do God's will properly. And again, we're not sinless here, but we're doing God's will properly uh, even though we're under the trial. Then we will pass the trial or pass the test, and as James finishes here, the result will be our maturity. Uh, so we will all be mature, complete. You see there in your, if you have a New American Standard, it says perfect, but perfect really means mature. And that means satisfaction of life. So what James tells us at the front is the first phrase he uses is the phrase around joy. Consider it all joy. Why? Because these trials are producing in us a life of satisfaction, a life that is filled with um, satisfaction based on the fact that we have endurance and strength. The second section deals with our attitude towards God during these times of trial. And so <clears throat> the idea is here, first and foremost, that for all Christians to say that they love God is a fiction. The, uh, all Christians do not love God. If that were true, and I, I'm, I can't believe that I don't have my Bible with me because, you know what, I'm just going to go get it. I'll see you in a second. I took it in my office for a reason. I'll just keep talking. This is a This is good. I'm in my office. I should have really something funny to say, but I don't. I'll show you in a second why I br- I, I never bring this Bible in my office. And I knew it. Now I have to find James without a computer. Thank you, Jim. No, I mean it. So where do we have in uh, starting in verse 2? Here we go. All right, verse 13. Let no one say that when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself cannot tempt anyone. So why does James put this in here in verse 13 is because the other issue in which he's likely heard this of the people that he's writing to, which are early Christians in the early church, is that they have been going through trials and they've been blaming God for it, that God is testing them. How often have we heard this? How often have we heard people blame God for their misery, for their suffering? God doesn't do this. God will allow tests to come upon us, but he doesn't put misery on us. We're to consider it all joy, right? The testing is for a reason, but God tempts nobody. 
So this is whole, so we get theological and we say, so where, you know, where do they come from? And the only thing that we can do here that makes sense of it is that God allows it. And that's certainly true because God has allowed sin, God has allowed evil, God has allowed the fall of Satan and the fall of angels. And so, and he allowed us to eat of the fruit of the tree, so God does allow. He allows sin and he allows evil. Um, and so, when we see here, uh, let's see, verse 12, go back to verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who do what? Who love him. This is the man who has persevered under trial. And that is the qualification of those who love God. Uh, and so the idea that all believers love God is a fiction. Because then that would mean that you have to persevere under trial to be saved. That would be salvation by works. It is not that. Uh, so Jesus exhorted us... In, this matches, just to match it back to the teaching of our Lord. Jesus exhorted his disciples to love him. He said that if anyone loved him, that they would keep his commandments. And that he and the Father would build their house with that one. That's in John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And me and my Father, or my Father and I, will build our house with you. So, uh, loving Christ can only happen when we discover him. Uh, <clears throat> you have to see him for who he is. You have to know the work that he has done for you. And this at salvation, we don't really know much about it. But uh, afterwards, by learning his word, then what we, what we have is an understanding of this person, this man, this God, the God-man who has done what he has done for us. And we love him. We know the Father has sent him. And they're all, the three in the Trinity, are all in agreement with this entire uh, uh, plan of redemption, of salvation. So, if you love him, you'll do what he asks you to do. So, this is brilliant because James starts with trials. We might say, well... You know, if James is about trials and suffering, then I don't really need the book of James when things are going well. But that's not true because if you're able to endure under trial, you're absolutely able to endure when things are prosperous and easy. But the reverse is not true. If you say, well, you know, things are going well and I feel like I can persevere under this easy life, well, that doesn't even go together. But if you can persevere under trial, if you can follow the Lord, if you can pick up your cross and follow the Lord when it's hard, you certainly can do it when it's easier. And that's why when, when James here, as we saw yesterday, the, the Christians in Jerusalem were dispersed. It was Saul of Tarsus and that whole persecution and the pain and suffering that came with that that caused them all to leave, to go you know, at least you know, they're all walking. You know, no one's taking a train or anything. So it's, uh, they, they go away and get away from the persecution to the northern, southern parts of Judea and in Samaria. And it's a difficult time for them. And trial brings out either the best in you or the worst in you. It's one way or the other. And so we find out who we really are. And so James really starts this with, in suffering in general, you find out the quality of your faith. Now, 
rather than loving God, in the next line, in verse 13, James gives the alternative, that we blame God for our trials. <clears throat> and unfortunately, well, we know this isn't foreign to the human race. I mean, it's a, it's a riot to see people who reject God or unbelievers who give God no time whatsoever, and then as soon as something bad happens to them, they blame God. Um, and they blame him in a, in a judicial way. Because it actually might be God who has brought the pain upon them to, to wake them up. But uh, the, the whole reason that God is waking them up is their own fault. Uh, we bring, so, you know, where did pain and suffering come from? From God? <laughs> no, it came from us. We ate. We fell. We killed our brother. We built the city when we shouldn't have. We built the Tower of Babel when we shouldn't have. Right? We caused we cause God to bring the flood. We broke off from God and formed our own pagan nations that worshipped false gods, really worshipped demons. We did all of that. We killed each other. We stole from each other. And, and James is going to bring that out brilliantly here in his prologue. So blaming God for your trials. Unfortunately, quite sadly, Christians do this too. That whole, you know, the whole prosperity gospel is such a chronic issue in America, and especially in certain churches that are, you know, people clamor for this and they believe this nonsense that if you just follow God, everything's going to be, you know, easy. And, and it's not. You know, it's not theologically sound. It's not biblically sound. There's going to be hard times. Do the hard times come from God, though? They do not. God allows them, but he is not the source. So we must note in the book that James uses death as a term for the results of sin, even in Christians. James uses death for the result of sin, even in Christians. And this is the reason my Bible was in my office, because... I went online to look for a picture of this verse, and I was like, you know what? I'm spending how many minutes trying to find it? I just took a picture of my own Bible, <laughs> and uh, there it is. So that's it, the famous pastor's Bible. James likes to use death as a term for the results of sin and evil in Christian lives. So when you see there in verse 21, it's 121. You read it in your own Bible rather than trying to squint at that. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. See that? So that opening line there matches with the theme of death. Death. This sin, James is going to tell us, gives birth to it. Sins give birth to death. And <clears throat> so he says here, um, in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. So the word implanted, it does, it's actually an agricultural word, and it goes all along with the theme that James is using here, that he's going to be talking about really birthing. And that's his analogy he's going to use. And in birthing, there is a child, and the child matures. Um, depending on the quality of that child, the maturity of that child can be a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, so, <clears throat> the Word of God is implanted, and what is in us 
is that place that, you know, as, as Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower, there's good soil in here. Now, it's hard to believe. There's <laughs> not just insanity in here, but there's good soil in here. Because as John writes in 1 John, there's a divine seed. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. There's a divine seed inside of us, a divine nature that God has put there. And that nature is longing for the Word of God. But implanted means not just heard and blown off. That's going to be James's issue. They're hearers, but they're not doers. They're, they have faith, but they don't have works. And they say they have, they have faith. Okay, they believe a lot of things, but they don't do anything. They don't do anything about what they believe. They don't live out what they believe. And that's not technically the word implanted. That's kind of the, you know, that's the word that doesn't grow at all. I mean, if we go to the parable of the sower, that's the, the soil that has the thorns and the thistles. And if you remember in the parable, you know, what, what made for thorns and thistles was worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, persecution. It's exactly what James is talking about here. Persecution from, because of the word. And they just, you know, <coughs> gave up on it. Because it's not worth this. I mean, I'll do the little Bible studies and stuff. Sounds like fun. But if it's going to be persecution because I'm a follower of Christ and a follower of His Word, no thank you. So that's not implanted. So James here perhaps is, has the parable of the sower, the greatest of the parables as Jesus described it, as the reason why he uses this phrase, implanted. It's able to save your, and I put on the board there, because soul there means life. This is, a, this is very easily seen all throughout the rest of the New Testament that this very phrase is used in that context. James is talking to believers here. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. This is able to save your souls. I'm sorry, lies. <laughs> I just messed it up myself. This is able to save your lives. And that's very important. So what is James' book about? A life and death situation. A life and death situation for the church. Not for the unbeliever. That's a different situation. That's a gospel situation. This is a life and death situation for the church. For the members of the church. The gospel saved you, but the word of God implanted is the only thing that's going to save your life. Meaning, life and time, the experience of your life, your life now, the walk, the experience, the fruitfulness, the joy of it, the impact, the wisdom you have, the humility, the peace, all of it. All of that fruit that makes for an abundant life. And that's, that's the word that Jesus uses, abundant life. We're going to close with that. In God's wisdom literature, he speaks of this quite frequently. So let's take a trip to Proverbs and do a quick flyby, if you will, of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord, uh, Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. 
Right, so uh, he doesn't have to come right out and say it, right? He means death here. And this is what James is speaking of. Now, it becomes a question for us, I think. That is James speaking of physical death when he says, you know, that, that death, save your souls or save your life, does that mean you're going to die? But think about it, that a life of prolonged sin and evil does end up in a miserable death. And it ends up, you would say, in a shorter life. But say you say, well, wait a minute, I, that person lived, that miserable person, Live to be 90, that old coot. You know, we all wanted him to go earlier, but he just hung on like the evil, you know, what he was. So, you know, but does length of time really mean life? You know, because if you hold on to sin and evil and you let it mature and it produces this death, you start bleeding out. It's a good word for that. You start bleeding out energy, life, happiness. You start absorbing misery, bitterness, complaining. And you're not really living. Okay, your heart's beating and there's a few bolts, uh, <laughs> there's a few little uh, sparks flying around in your brain, but you know, are you really alive? And I, I know that's what the Bible's getting at here, because the Bible never talks about length of days in terms of how long people really live, except you know way at the beginning in Genesis, where everybody's living up to be you know eight and nine hundred years old. But not in not in especially not in the New Testament. Quality of life is length of life, and that quality of life rolls into your fifties, sixties, seventies. And yeah, even when your brain doesn't work all that great anymore, even in your 80s, you still have a quality of life because you have a relationship with God. And it makes me think of uh, Barbara's mom, um, Mabel, right? Was, is that, I'm, I'm now confused because I, I messed up whose mirror it was on Sunday and I felt bad about that. But Mabel was in her 90s. She couldn't <clears throat> remember hardly anyone anymore. And I, she was as happy as a clam. And when she knew she was dying, they were taking It's a great story. They, she knew she was dying. They were taking her by ambulance from the nursing home she was in in Dallas to the hospital, I think. And she was singing Christian hymns sing, and telling the, the EMTs that she was going to see Jesus and how excited she was. What a testimony. See, that's length of life. But if you have that kind of faith and that attitude at 50 years old, that's life. And that's what James is getting at here. See, the people that James is writing to, we'll see it. What's, I don't know when I'm going to summarize it all, but maybe in the, we'll see what they were doing anyway. It might be tomorrow night. But they are lusting. They're longing for riches. They're treating rich people different than poor people when both are Christians. Uh, they're fighting with one another. They're not gracious. They're uh, competitive. They're immoral. Uh, and they're not, they, the immorality, they're not separating themselves from the world. And I'm, I'm trying to go through the list here, but, uh, and there's more, right? That's, their, that's how they're behaving, and that's what James brings out. 
And in their minds, well, you know, kind of like the Corinthians, we believed, right? And we're forgiven. What does it matter? And James is saying here, just like Paul will say to the Corinthians, you're the holy temple of God. You're supposed to live abundantly. And, and I, I love that, that uh, metaphor, I guess it is, that we used last night, that if I'm this masterpiece that God has made that is carved out of this ugly stone and made me this masterpiece, how I treat this, and I do mean the physical body as well as the mind, the soul, all of me, how I treat this is my reflection of my gratitude to Him for what He has made me to be. And it is my appreciation for what He has made me to be. And then I value what He's made me to be. And I swear to you, man, if that very thought had made sense to me 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, I would have lived differently. It's amazing the impact it has. And I beg you, I beg all of you to pray about it, search about it, about this very thing. Who are you in Christ? What has He made you to be? Figuring that out is going to give you the love and the motivation to live life wearing the crown of life. That is the key. Is the key to actually see and unravel the gospel. So, life shortened. Let's get back to the bad news of Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10, 27. Let's read it again. The fear of the Lord belong, uh, prolongs life. Notice that. The fear of the Lord. And it's something that James will mention and Paul will mention in, in the New Testament that we are to fear the Lord. Uh, it prolongs life, but years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs eleven nineteen. And by the way, that makes sense if <clears throat> if the wicked don't fear the Lord, then they don't really care for what they do. You know, what does it matter what I do? I don't care. But those who fear the Lord greatly care about what they do. Proverbs eleven nineteen: He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. All right, that's two. Let's go to the third. Proverbs twelve twenty eight. In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Again, the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. By the way, the Proverbs is God's wisdom. It's eternal. It's not an Old Testament or New Testament thing. It's an eternal thing. Proverbs 13, 1. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Again, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. And our final one, go to Proverbs 19.16. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of conduct will die. So I'll read them all for you in summary. The years of the wicked will be shortened. He who pursues evil will bring about his own death. In the pathway of righteousness, there is no death. To turn aside from the teaching of the wise is the snares of death. And he who is careless of conduct will die. This is truly the purpose of the book of James. 
to turn the early church away from the wickedness, unrighteousness that they were pursuing. And again, as I said, this is in fact brilliant. Because if I'll I'll continue in righteousness and the fear of the Lord when I'm under trial, then I'm certainly going to do it when it's easy. And that's why I think it's brilliant here that James starts the whole book out with trial. All right, let's go back to James 1. So, physical death would definitely be included, as we see here in Proverbs, and as a sort of big final crash that ends a life ruled by sin and evil. Right? And it's ugly. It's a very ugly crash, a very ugly end. But in James's use of the word, its effects are felt before physical death. The effects of this death that is coming. And remember, his letter is addressed to Christians. According to the first book written in the New Testament, Christians can experience a life that is more like death than it is like eternal life. That's the warning. Christians can experience a life that's more like death than it is like eternal life. And here's another thing that's a great danger. We can get used to it. We can ignore what the life is supposed to be and obey a few rules of morality that we find you know, fairly easy. And give in to other things that God tells us not to do. And then make this amalgamation of our own plan and God's plan and say it's good enough. And we get used to it. We get used to being miserable. Sadly, in the human race, people thrive on being miserable. Some people. I think Christians do it as well. They they don't see how how good it could be. If they just gave it all. And you know, we we have a hard time giving it all over at once. There's a process here, but if we just gave it all over to our Lord, everything in our lives. Because from God only comes good things. So this living while feeling somewhat dead, all of us intrinsically know this. And all have to some extent felt the pain of things like this. Pain of what? Of despair, of anger, of shame, and other equally ungodly things that have overwhelmed us. Doesn't it feel like you're dead? Even though you're alive? I, I, heard, I read this great line. I'm, I'm reading this uh, fairy tale. It's actually, this book is written for young adults, and I am just loving this this fairy tale. It's called uh, Pan's Labyrinth. It's a remake of the movie that they put into, it's not a movie, it's a book, though. And anyway, it's, um, one of the characters is has gone through tons of suffering. She's uh, probably a 30-year-old woman. She's gone through tons of suffering, and she's uh, behind the enemy lines, as a pretending to be someone she's not, and she's constantly in danger. She's one of the good, the good guys, good girls. And um, <clears throat> she was with all these ladies in the kitchen, and they were all singing, and you know they're making dinner and stuff. It's in like a castle somewhere, and she's in there, and they're all jovial. And uh, she can't join in. You know, she's safe. She's in a safe environment in the kitchen, helping them prepare dinner. 
and she can't join in. And the line was, her heart was too tired. And why Her heart was too tired. Why? The pressure. There was always pressure. I'm going to get caught. I'm going to get found. Uh, I've gone in all the pain of the past that keeps coming back. Those memories, it's pressure, it's pressure, it's pain. It comes to the point where you can't even smile anymore. Even, even when you're not in danger, even when things are not going bad, it's just like you are so tired of life. No believers get like that. It's a tired heart. And it feels like death. It's certainly not life. And that's what James is saying. These things will save your, not soul, your life. That's his book. Saving your life and not allowing it to be a born-again person, having eternal life, being enshrouded with darkness. It's really all in here. Enshrouded with darkness in here. Because why? Because God has done it to you? No. You have fell prey to the enemies of God. They have darkened you. And how have they darkened you? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at James 1.13. See, that's a perfect place to leave a cliffhanger. You close class right there. All thousands of people who are listening to this can't wait to hear the next one. But it's too early to leave a cliffhanger. Uh, James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. <coughs> Excuse me. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, hold in your mind. You don't have to. I'll remind you of it in a few minutes. That phrase brings forth is a um, is an image of James's theme. Brings forth. James's theme is about saving your life or death. Saving your life or death. Bringing forth is what? Bringing forth life. This in uh, 13 through 15, well, actually 14 and 15, is about childbearing. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, the word accomplished here, where it sees where sin is accomplished, it really means matured. Right? So accomplished doesn't mean that you did it, which it does. It does. Don't get me wrong. It means that you did it. But matured is the term here that that means. So we'll see that in a second. All of Satan's efforts to lead people into evil... And all of the world's seductions would have no effect on a person at all unless he's drawn drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And we know this intrinsically to be true. There are things that entice me that wouldn't entice another Christian remotely. And vice versa. There are areas of sin, materialism, lust, physical things, And I would think in some cases even mental things. Actually, for sure I would know that to be true. That people are not enticed in that. Some people are born with, um, you know, just calmer dispositions. That's really in their DNA. 
It's hard to get them riled up. I envy those people. See? Uh, no, I didn't get that one. I got the other one. Uh, <laughs> my dad's Irish. My mom's Irish. They're both from the west coast of Ireland. There's a lot of angry people there. I shouldn't say that. That's kind of that's kind of a judgment, blanket judgment. But no, you know, Irish are known for their temper, you know, for the, for a reason. Anyway, that's the the point isn't about me at all. Um, but I know some people they never ever get mad, hardly ever. And I'm like that, that just stinks. Uh, you know, you want everybody to be have your problems. Um, and so I have to be careful. I can't, see, here's the thing. I can't just say, hey, that's who I am. Hey, don't get mad at me. I'm Irish. Right? You can't. (laughs) No, 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 no. You're not Irish anymore, idiot. You're a child of God who is a new creature in Christ. You have no right to get angry ever again. You have no right to sin ever again. Now, of course, we're going to. And we're under the grace of God and we're forgiven. But my point is, there are areas that other people have that don't entice me in the least. You know, I, I've, wor- I've worked with in the past and in, in thinking of uh, getting back into working with uh, addiction. And, um, you know, and I, I've, a number of years ago, I was in, involved in an, an addiction program to, to help people. I've been in addiction programs long before that for myself. But, you know, I was, help- and, and it, what I was surrounded, I had, a, there was a lot of drug addicts. And it, that does nothing for me. You know, I have no temptation in that area. But some people, and I've known them, it is the worst. Right? They just can't be anywhere near it. And you know, so why is that? I don't. Know, is it DNA? It doesn't matter why. What matters is that all of us have something, and that all of us are enticed. If Satan efforts to lead us into evil. And the world's seductions to lead us into evil were met with no desire. They wouldn't work on any of us. And that's what James is saying here. Look again in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's our choice. So our temptations, first and foremost, always come from darkness. This helps us. See that thing that's tempting you? That's from a very bad place. Is it from God? No. Your flesh will say, this isn't that bad. Do you know where it's from? The world system, is that a good place? This is the most awful place. Satan? <clears throat> it's, it's the pit of hell. And that's actually how James is going to describe it. We'll get there. We have to summarize the end of the book. I think... I think for us, you know, to really get the meat and potatoes of this book are the first two chapters, and then we can we can just kind of look at the final uh, final chapters, final three chapters, in, in really in a snapshot, um, because it's here where the the issue is in the front, and the details of what the people were doing are in the back, and so the details we can go over quick. We kind of know what they are already, anyway. <coughs> That temptation comes from a terrible place. And this helps us greatly. Do you really want something that comes from that place? 
There's a restaurant, and there all the restaurants in Dallas went through Dallas, not Texas, Dallas, Oregon, where I live. They went through a health inspection just a few months ago, and all of them did like what? What are? It's a score out of a hundred. All of them were up near a hundred, meaning how clean you are, where you're. Tra- you know, the health department goes in and checks everything. There's one restaurant I got a seventy. Seventy. You think I'm ever going back to that place? No. I don't care even if they if they if they uh, advertise that they had cleaned up and all of that. I ain't, I'm never going there. It's still open and there are still people going in there. They must not have read the report. A 70, right? You know, I know in high school in math class you're like 70, yeah, but uh, not for the health department. <laughs> you see, it's not. It's a zero where your temptations are coming from. Your temptations from the flesh, from the world, from the devil have all failed the health test, the cleanliness test of God by a hundred. They have failed it to zero. That's where your temptations are coming from. And that's what James is bringing out so beautifully. So, he uses the imagery of a childbearing mother. (laughs) Now, when I first, I was like, let me get a picture and I think, a pregnant lady, right? And I, I just couldn't do it. You'll see here first. Uh, the desire is the egg. Let's read it again. When each one is tempted, verse 14, when each one is tempted when he is carried away, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is accomplished, it bring forth, brings forth death. So the temptation combines with the lust, his own lust. So the temptation, what I'm calling here desire, is really the egg. Unfertilized, right? It, it, it doesn't go anywhere. We don't have to get into the uh, details of, this, of the female cycle or anything. So anyway, that's the potential mother. The desire is the egg. The conception is when will matches with desire. What it brings forth and I say, you know, congratulations, you have a new healthy baby boy who is sin. Don't do that, right? And so I colored my stork's bag black. <laughs> I'm having fun with my pictures. So, And then what is the death? The death isn't the, as you see it, when sin is accomplished, it seems to say, look, now look at verse 15 again because it's confusing in the English. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished. Wait a minute. Doesn't give birth to sin mean I've accomplished the sin? It most certainly does. The word accomplished here is a Greek word that means matured. So accomplished is a bad translation. When the sin is matured, what do we mean by matured? Well, it depends on how you want to look at it. We could look at it as your child is grown. And then he dies, like we all do. What it really means that you have left this child. Remember who the child is. It's sin. And you have let it mature. Right? All of us sin. James is, James is very well aware of that. But mature sin means I keep again and again, just like the people he's writing to, I keep again and again uniting my desire with, uh, sorry, sinful desire with my will. Sin, whether it's my sinful desire comes from here or out there in the world, doesn't matter. 
But my sinful, and we have more problems with this, I think, but my, my will has matched up, made a baby with desire again and again and again. And you could even think of it as one child that I like sin in general, whatever it is your sins are, and you keep committing them. And so they keep hanging around. We all do it. I get it. We have the grace of God and we're forgiven. Thank God. I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. But <clears throat> am I going to live, are you going to live the abundant life of Christ if we don't overcome? If we don't overcome them? The, the issue with us is we say, well, this is good enough. You know, I'm alive. I'm getting by. Is it good enough? Is it abundant? Is it the crown of life? <clears throat> so again, there's no sinlessness. But mature sin is a sin, say a sin nature, or a group of sins, type of sins, that are ruling our lives. So we spend time on this now because death is a word that James uses to describe his main theme. The tricky this so this helps us right just so greatly the tricky terms faith without works is dead. This is the death that he's talking about, not eternal life, not eternal death in the lake of fire. He's not talking about that. This death, the death that is the Christian whose life is mastered by sin and evil. He is not referencing the same justification. So what's the other tricky term? A man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You say, well, wait a minute. He's, he's in complete disagreement with Paul. He is not in complete disagreement with Paul. He's in total disagreement, uh, total agreement with Paul because they're not talking about the same justification. It's a different justification. James is definitely saying that a man is saved by faith alone. So look at, uh, go to the end. Go to James 5.19. Last line of the book. You see here how it matches with the beginning, the prologue. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will recover a multitude of sins. Now, does James there mean he's going to save him from eternal life? My brethren. Who's the brethren? These are the saved people. Some will say, oh, he's talking to Jews. That's why he's calling them brethren. You know, He's addressed this letter to the 12 tribes of Israel because that's, these are basically the church is full of Jews. He is not, because it's so early. This letter is written so early in the church. <clears throat> he means Christians, just like Paul when he writes, my brethren. He means Christians. If you turn someone from the truth, know that you have saved the sinner from the error of his way and will save his soul from death, his life from death. That's the death he's talking about the stork that brought your sinful baby. <laughs> Sorry, it's a weird analogy, but whatever. Uh, <clears throat> so this last line matches the prologue, which tells you the theme of the letter. Let us Christians live and not die. 
Let us live. It's so simple. Let us live. Live how? We should understand that when James means live, he means now. Not in eternity, now. There is no time to lose. This is an, there is, isn't it? There's no time to lose. There are some things that are becoming clear to me at this age that I wish became clear to me at a prior age. And I think to myself, how much time do I have left to actually mature this, what I know that I now can do? You know, I wouldn't have thought I could do it before. But God has shown me. He's done the same for multi-umpteen million Christians before. I don't know how many, but how much time do you have left? There's no time to lose. It's an extremely serious situation or consideration for all believers. If this warning of death doesn't straighten what is crooked, remember that there is a judgment seat of Christ that we will all have to stand at. James is going to mention that also in his letter, sure enough. Now, I decided for this lesson to start with death and then look at life. And that's actually the opposite of what James has done. So, let's again go back to... Yeah, that's too much. Um... Verse 12. There's another little bit here, and I'll bring it up tomorrow. But verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So that's the, that's the beginning line of the second part of the prologue. It's right here. So this was the beginning of our lesson today. So... But I I read it before, but I kind of left it out. I did all the death stuff. What is the death? The the desire matches with the will, produces the sin. The sin matures, it produces death. Uh, God's position here is to save our lives, our current lives, so that we live them abundantly. And notice now at the front of it, he says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Right? This is trial in general. Persevere means you endure while doing God's will. For once he has been approved, he will receive, and that means, approved means you pass the test. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Is James here talking about a future crown in heaven? Could be. Definitely could be. And if you want to take that stance, you're more than welcome. But I don't think so. Because everything in this book is about the here and now. The living now, today. And in, it's not just me, but other of my commentators that I, that I like. I like when they agree with me. So those are my favorite commentators, right? That uh, he is speaking now, not a free future crown, although it would match a future crown, which this crown of life is also mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 as being in the future. But everything he's writing about in this letter is about the here and now. And James promises us that if we endure under trial, what does it mean to wear a crown of life? It's, some fan, you know, it's not a fancy crown. What does it mean? It means royalty. 
But what, what does the king have? He conquers, he or she, um, defeats his foes, conquers, lives abundantly. And that's how Jesus described it. If I can get to my last slide here. Jesus said the thief only comes in to steal. What's that after steal? Kill and destroy. Sounds like death, doesn't it? Exactly does. Who's this thief? Satan, the flesh. I more see it as Satan. Uh, it's what gets me. This, yeah. How much of my time has this thief stolen from me already? I'd, I'd hate to know. I don't want to know. You know, leave behind what's behind. Thank God for that. But, but in reality, it's not a bad idea to just at least give it some thought. How much has he already stolen from me? How much have I just handed over of my life, of my mind, of my body that God has given me? Again, none of us are perfect, but how much have I given over? Because I did not treasure what God had made me to be, my spiritual life. I didn't treasure it. And so the thief came in and steal and destroy. But Christ said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And to me, that's just what James is speaking of. The crown of life. A crown of life that is you and I living as spiritual kings, not kings, but spiritual kings while we walk this earthly walk. And that is what James is about. So when we get to the passage, the tricky old passage about you have works and I have faith and you're not justified by your faith, you're justified by your works, and we're like, oh, James is stupid. He doesn't agree with Paul. We see that James is speaking of justification in terms of this light, not living life, not uh, the justification that Paul is talking about, which is by faith in Christ. There's a justification before God and there's a justification that I live the eternal life that I now possess. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for all things. Thank you for James. Thank you for this letter. Thank you that with time and study that we can clarify things that um, have been distorted by people who have not understood. And I think distorted by the kingdom of darkness who don't want people to understand. And so we thank you, Father, for the clarity that comes from your spirit through your word. And we ask for your enlightenment. In Christ's name, amen.